Welcome to First Thought, a podcast by Galway International Arts Festival. I'm your host, Katrina Crow, curator of the First Thought Talks series. This episode was recorded in September 2020 as part of Galway International Arts Festival's Autumn Edition, which took place against the backdrop of COVID-19 and marked a return to Galway's Black Box Theatre for the first time since March. Inevitably, live events look very different this year. For some talks, we were joined by a socially distanced audience. Others went out to online-only audiences. We thank you now for joining us here on the podcast and becoming yet another member of our extended audience. The First Thought talk series at GIAF's 2020 Autumn Edition were presented in association with NUI Galway. Ireland's participation in the Soccer World Cup in Italy in 1990, 30 years ago, was a defining time for the country, leading to community bonding, national pride and general elation. Jack Charlton, alas no longer with us, became an object of national veneration for getting us so far in the competition before Italy put a stop to our gallop. And nobody will forget Mr. Scalacci, who haunts our nightmares since. The Irish fans distinguished themselves as fans and revellers, even when we lost, we won. Colm Turbine, award-winning novelist, journalist and essayist, and Eamon Dunphy, Ireland's best-known sports journalist, were in Italy in 1990, and they had, to say the least, an interesting time, which they're going to tell us about tonight. And we're absolutely delighted to have them join us uh, virtually here in Galway. Our moderator is Mark Duncan, director of the wonderful Century Ireland website, which tracks the history of Ireland 100 years ago, and co-curator for the exhibition on Italian 90 at the Little Museum of Dublin, who are also partnering with us tonight and broadcasting this event on their Facebook channel. Uh, And you can go and see the exhibition in the beautiful Little Museum of Dublin on Stephen's Green, if you wish. So, Mark, over to you. Thank you very much, uh, Katrina, for that uh, very kind introduction. And thank you also for putting together such a brilliant and eclectic programme of First Talks against uh, a very difficult backdrop. It's not easy to host any arts organisations at the moment, particularly when the goalposts continually shift and you never know what you're going to uh, encounter when an event uh, actually uh, comes to pass. Um, This is one of a number of online only events as part of the first talk series. Uh, this is the final first talks uh, first talks event of this Sunday. Uh, this morning began with an absolutely riveting uh, discussion of Bloody Sunday uh, 1920, the centenary of which um, comes to pass in a number of months. Uh, fortunately tonight we are dealing with another very important moment in our sports history, a far less traumatic moment in our sports history, but it no doubt impacted upon a far greater number of people. So it'll be um, uh, wonderful to uh, to explore just um, how our two guests experienced it and also the wider meaning of, of that event. I am here, uh, as Katrina said, in the splendid and spacious, if eerily quiet, black box uh, theatre in Galway. We have uh, an online audience available to us and we will encourage you uh, to contribute questions throughout our, uh, throughout our conversation with our guests this evening and we will put, endeavour to put as many of them as we can to them at the end of the night. As I said, our subject matter tonight is Italia 90, the 30th anniversary of which passed some months ago. Um, judged critically and solely in sporting terms, it was perhaps the worst 
World Cup um, in history. Um, it recorded the fewest number of goals per game than any World Cup in history. Uh, and it was so dismal indeed that it forced the powers that be in world soccer to change the laws to try and encourage a more um, expansive and creative and exciting game. Um, now in Ireland, none of that seemed to matter a jot. That sporting reality um, tended to jar with a popular Irish experience. Um, and, it, and, and it jarred for a number of reasons. Firstly, I suppose this was the first, first 14th World Cup, but the first in which the Republic of Ireland had, had, um, had uh, qualified for. And of course, we went all the way to the quarterfinal. More important than that, for the month of June 1990, we witnessed an extraordinary coming together of people, which just showed you that a country can actually lose the run of itself and not self-harm. Um, neither of our two guests tonight kicked a ball at Italia 90, but neither of them necessarily swam with the tide of national euphoria during that month, but they were both players in the national drama that unfolded. Conzo Bean, as Katrina uh, said, is of course one of our most brilliant and celebrated um, novelists and essayists, and not someone we traditionally associate with sport, but uh, Colm, some years ago I was picking my way through a, a bookshelf in a second-hand bookshore, uh, bookstore in Dublin, and I lifted this collection, which was the Esquire Book of Sports Writing. And there amidst uh, articles and wonderful essays on Joe DiMaggio, Muhammad Ali, George Best, Michael Jordan, Boris Becker, were two essays by Colm Tobin. And he was the only author to have two essays in this collection. One of them, uh, the focus fell on Diego Maradona and, and, and his emergence as a, as a footballing star. But as the title of that essay, The Shame of Argentina, suggests, it was about an awful lot more than that. The second essay in that collection from Colm was called Ireland's War on Eamon Dunphy, which had as its backdrop the Italian 90 World Cup. Now, mercifully, not least for the purposes of tonight's discussion, Eamon Dunphy survived the war that Ireland waged upon him uh, 30 years ago. Um, much like Colm, he has had an extraordinary career and his journey from professional footballer to um, TV analyst to uh, influential uh, newspaper columnist to author of best-selling books is one of the most remarkable in Irish journalism and one that continues today uh, through his podcast, uh, The Stand. Um, it's a pleasure to be joined by both of you this evening, gentlemen, and over the next 40 minutes or 45 minutes or so, uh, I'm looking forward to revisiting Italia 90 with you and your personal experiences and perhaps reflecting on an Ireland that was at the time on the cusp of an extraordinary social and eco economic uh, transformation. Uh, Eamon, I might start with you, and rather than going back 30 years, maybe just go back three months to the death of Jack Charlton. I was really struck, and just contrasting the response in England uh, to the response here. It was, of course, in England very dignified and respectful, but there seemed to be a genuine warmth uh, in Ireland. What do you think it was about Jack's personality or character traits that, uh, that connected so much with Irish people? I think he was, um, he didn't have uh, the affectations that we associate with English people. Uh, he was straight talker, he was gruff and contrary uh, but always himself. He liked to paint, uh, and he could. Uh, the common man 
and woman could identify with Jack. He was really quite a down-to-earth fellow. Uh, there was no artifact about him, really. And I think he was adored because he took our soccer team to places we had never uh, been to before. In 1988, we qualified for the European Championships and we beat England in Stuttgart. Now, that was a moment in popular culture that resonated with everybody. And of course, we got to the World Cup in 1990. And as you say, when he died um, a few weeks ago, you could see uh, the warmth and affection Irish people had for Jack. The whole country. Nobody looked down on soccer. Nobody, uh, everyone saluted him. Um, and there was a, a sense that as a people, we had lost somebody that mattered. And that's remarkable for an English football manager. Uh, Colm, good afternoon to you, because you're actually joining us from uh, Los Angeles. So um, um, wonderful to have you with us. As well as the personality, is there certain nostalgia as well for that period of time? And maybe perhaps that Jack's passing occurs at a time of COVID lockdown. Is it perhaps a nostalgia for maybe a shared sense of uh, experience, communal experience, and a joyous communal experience, as opposed to a kind of a, a kind of a, a, a suppressed communal experience that we've enjoyed, we've experienced in the last few weeks. I think it told us a lot about the relationship between the two islands. Uh, the first one being that the English were really becoming known for being hooligans. The Italian press, the Italian police, everyone was waiting for them. They were meant to behave like hooligans. And here, this other island. And the Irish were determined. It wasn't just they were determined not to behave like hooligans. They had no interest in it. It just didn't interest them. After the match, they wanted to go and drink with their friends, wanted to hang out, they wanted to cheer. They, they were incredibly good humans. And there was no, it wasn't as though that was forced or imagined or something that reporters just missed the real story. That, oddly enough, for once, was the real story. And the second real story with the um, Ireland-England aspect of this is that so many of the players came from families that Irish people knew about, but had not appeared much in Irish literature or really had been forgotten about. The business of your uncle who went to England and married an Englishwoman, and the kids had English accents, but they were sort of Irish names. And oddly, one of them would often come back more than the others, or one summer they'd all come with their English accents and their Irish names. And that had never been officially recognized as part of Ireland. I mean, you have to remember that this, this 1990, later on, Mary Robinson will be elected with that, that whole idea of diaspora, the word diaspora, which really was used up to then mainly about Jewish people. Suddenly Ireland was taking this word diaspora for itself and was recognizing this diaspora with you know, lights in the window of the Oris and Uchtaron. But before that, that whole idea of the players having hyphens in their identity and being Irish with English accents and that being fully um, and playing, you know, and, and the way in which Jack Charlton sort of managed this um, it was some. It was an Englishness that a lot of Irish people would have recognised. A lot of our uncles or our cousins worked with people like that, or married people like that. So that it, it wasn't as though he was he was he was a stranger in Ireland. He was already known in Ireland, but it wasn't official. This may be an ex more expansive idea of Irishness. Is really interesting. We might return to it later. But Katrina said at the outset, of course, that both of you were in Italy. 
uh, in June uh, 1990. I, I think it's perhaps interesting to know how you got there and maybe your own kind of journeys in journalism uh, prior to that and, and particularly you Eamon because I read in your memoir that was published a number of years ago it's a fantastic book The Rocky Road um, but it always seemed to me that journalism I mean you just didn't materialise on the scene in 1990 you'd already established a profile and a presence um, in the Irish media but it was not an easy transition from professional football to to journalism, to pundit. There were a lot of obstacles in your way and there was a lot of difficulty in, in establishing yourself in the Dublin media. Am I right? Can, can you tell us a bit about that? Yes. Well, uh, there was um, a trade union, uh, clothes shop element journalism, uh, which meant to even submit copy and be paid for it you would have had to be a member of the NUJ, National Union of Journalists. And you couldn't be a member of the NUJ unless you'd had uh, a number of pieces published. So it was catch 22. And I was unfortunately outside of that. Usually I'd either turn a blind eye, or a friend of a friend would get you. But Mary Holland, the late Mary Holland became, um, the chair of the freelance branch of the Dublin NUJ, and she fixed that, and I was able to get a card. So I, I went in also as an old footballer um, with ideas, and also as a working class man with ideas. And there aren't many working class journalists. Uh, there's no working class uh, presence in Irish media, really, at the, you know, the better end of it. So. Yeah, uh, footballers were not expected to be um, uh, expressing themselves and particularly not expected to be dissenting from the conventional wisdom of any given day. So that was what was special about my situation. But I overcame that with the help of uh, Angus Fanning and other people. So I was an outsider. Okay, yeah. For a time, you also worked with Colm. Colm, can you talk about oh, yes. that, that that relation? You were editor of McGill, were you, when Amy yeah, joined? Uh, yeah. Let me say, if I, if, if I may, he was a brilliant editor of McGill. And he there, it, it was the most uh, glorious period in McGill's history. He was a brilliant editor. He didn't know anything about me or football. And... But he was very, very encouraging most of the time. Although he called me into his office uh, one day. I'd written what, in retrospect, uh, was a very naive piece about the values of sport. Uh, these are the old Victorian values that sport would give you character and that you would be a better person for having participated in sport and I, I just submitted this copy and Colm called me in and he had the copy in front of him. And he said, he picked it up. He said, Eamon, I just read this. He said, do you really believe this stuff? <laughs> and I said, yes. And he started laughing. I mean, he was, he was a real, real kind and we were great pals. But I think that's an important exchange. I think that's important exchange in the sense that I discovered slowly that Dunphy meant business, that there, <laughs> that there wasn't a cynical bone in his body, that he was he was direct and that he was passionate and he was engaged. And I, I thought that was a bit curious about sport. Um, the, the reason he was in the magazine was very simple, that he wrote well. 
better than anybody else. I mean, I mean, I'm talking sentence by sentence by sentence. You could there was a great rhythm and passion in the way he wrote, and also the fact everything he wrote people would read and pay attention to. In other words, if if you there, people would read his sports column, his soccer column, and start talking about it, that he that he had really interesting opinions, that he didn't follow any any group, and so he was a, he was a godsend to the magazine. I mean, it was wonderful to have him. But can I, I mean, ask you, we had a rugby car. Yeah. Can I ask you, did you have an interest in sport? <coughs> all, all, all novelists are readers first. When you picked up a paper, were you ever one of those persons who opened the newspaper from the back to the front? Or, or is that just not you? Um, Mark, I'm, I'm a wimp and I'm a homosexual. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, give me a break. You know, <laughs> I, I am... Um, so, to that is no, uh, no, I didn't know anything about it at all. And no, when I would buy a newspaper, I would, I would, I would skip read the over the sport before I would read ballet before I would read sport. Uh, Eamon, before um, when you were writing McGill and also the Sunday Independent, um, you had already fixed ideas about what the problems were with Irish soccer. Uh, you had already taken issue with the FAI. You were quite critical of Jack Charlton's predecessor, Owen Hand, as well. What, what, yes. was, your, what was your problem with Irish soccer in the mid in the well, mid it was badly, well, well, it was badly run. Uh, it didn't give uh, opportunity. It didn't serve the community. Uh, that it was there to serve, which is essentially a working class community. I don't want to be too classist about this. Um, it's still a mess today, as everybody knows. So it wasn't serving the community. It wasn't serving the players. It was serving, serving nobody. Uh, and the kind of people that ran it were, they were dummies, really. Uh, and in fact, uh, that hasn't changed either. So um, I thought reform was necessary and when jack came jack charlton um he was he, he paid no attention to the administrators or the fai he did his own thing um and it was um fascinating um it was crude but you made the point in your introduction mark about how bad the 1990 world cup was and that it led to changes in the game. In that era of football, it was universally bad. It was crude, unimaginative, um, stereotyped. You could almost uh, predict the outcome of every game. And Jack was in that. Uh, and that suited Ireland, because the brilliance of the Argentinians, the Brazilians, the Italians wasn't on offer. So. The rough stuff, kick it up, run, heart, fights, all that old stuff. Uh, we were as good as the, anyone else at that. Jack's problem, in my view, which I tried to explain to Colm over dinner one night in Palermo, and he fell asleep. <laughs> the, our problem was that we had a squad of brilliant players, really top-class, brilliant players, and he made them play like the worst players in a style that was totally unsuitable. Paul McGrath, Ronnie Whelan, wonderful players. So that was a problem. And, I mean, and then he, he started yeah. winning. He got us to the European Championships in 1988. Some people 
believe or say they believe that that was the beginning of the Celtic Tiger because we gained confidence from that column might unravel that one. Well, we, we might we return to the pop glorious... sociology later, Eamon. Yeah. But you, but you, yeah. you, you, you had you had clashes with Jack Charlton from a very early stage. Was it the first press conference that you, yes. you, you had a run in yeah. with him? Can you tell us a bit about that? Well, Peter Burns from the Irish Times, who was one of the guys who didn't think I should be allowed to be a journalist, asked him a question that he didn't like. And he said he wouldn't answer it. And I intervened. I said, Jack, he's a journalist. He's entitled to ask a question. And he said, do you want to go outside? You're not even a journalist yourself. So that was a bad start. But that didn't really matter. You know, but I'm, I'm just, there's that episode, and I think there was an episode again in Euro 88. I'm just wondering, does those side of, those type of personnel clashes, do they shape or impact in any way your analysis? Is it, are you able to divorce no. yourself from those personal clashes when it comes to actually analysing a performance? Yes, absolutely, yeah. I mean, if you didn't, if you weren't, then... Uh, you wouldn't really survive. You certainly wouldn't prosper. So, no, it, it wasn't personal. I mean, I am as fond of Jack as anyone else. He was, you know, and even at the time, I wasn't, I, I think it was personal. It was business. Uh, Colm, uh, Italia 90 is approaching. Um, the country is beginning to whip itself into a fervour. Um, you can't turn on the radio without an ad being on. Uh, somebody's trying to flog a, a piece of Italian 90 merchandise. There's, uh, everybody seems to have an Italian 90 song. And you get a call, do you, to, to, to board a flight to Italy? Yeah, no, I'm foolish enough to wander into Angus Fanning's office just to see what's going on. And that, that was often very dangerous because he could look at you and think, there's something you should be doing just now. It was very, almost very like, very like, you know, you're, he had a sort of character building aspect to him. And, and he made me go to a rugby match once when he discovered I'd never been to one. And uh, so he said, look, I want you to go. The fact an Oscar is great because that means you won't try as an amateur to write about it and therefore annoy Dunphy. And we don't want to annoy Dunphy because he's our star. So your job is to go there and write about the fans, write about the, write, write about the restaurants, give people a sense of what they're going to be going to. They're going to Italy, for God's sake. And so uh, he set me off. And he sent me off for six weeks. And, uh, you know, I, my job was to go first to, um, to, you know, to and then down to Palermo to write for the fans about, really about the atmosphere they would be, you know, what would be happening. So I had two or three weeks there before anyone arrived. And it was, some of it was great, but it was lonely. And uh, also I was only to send copy once a week. And you were never sure whether it was the right or the wrong copy or the right day to send it. Or I got nothing right. But eventually, anyway, he, um, he phoned up. I mean, this was um, after the Ireland-Egypt um, match. And he phoned up and said, um, well, Dunphy was to come. The agreement Dunphy had with RTE was that he, was, he, would, he would cover the matches directly in the studio, except for one. And he would come to, to Palermo, to Sicily, to actually see this match himself. But he, he phoned to say he's coming a day earlier because he wanted to go to the press conference and get involved because he had already done his pencil-throwing act on the television and he wanted now to go and actually become passionately engaged directly you know in the place where the match was being played and just called up and said um look um he's become public enemy number one 
in Ireland. He threw this pencil at the television screen or something, and he denounced the team in some way or other. And the problem is that um, his missus is a bit worried about him, and she's been on the phone to me, <laughs> and she's saying, and she's saying, like, what are you going to do about him? He's, he's, he's in danger. It's as though the Sunday Independent is going to have to say, Eamon with two bodyguards, you know, and so um, to ex-army sergeants or something to go with him. And uh, so Angus said, no, no, we don't want to do that. So why don't you just never leave his side? I said, Angus, 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 hold on a minute. Like, hold on a minute. I'm going to run. If anyone comes at me, I'm going to run. He said, no, 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 <laughs> just, just don't do that. Just stay with them all the time. And so I said, hold on, and we had a, it was a very long, I did laugh a lot. I mean, it wasn't, I mean, it was, Angus, you know me, you know I'm the most, you, like, anyway, so Dunphy arrives, and uh, I've already chosen various restaurants. Dunphy likes his restaurant, and he likes good wine, and he likes all that sort of stuff. He can keep his working class stuff to himself, but, uh, but I, these times, <laughs> he's a boy who likes a really good restaurant and a really good red wine, and he knew his Barolo from his Amarono or whatever. I mean, he knew all that stuff. <laughs> so, um, I uh, had chosen various restaurants. Where we could go. He hadn't the slightest interest in this. He wanted to talk soccer and soccer and soccer. And he wanted to talk about what he's just described, this, this idea of a strategy that he felt was the wrong strategy being used for these players. And he wanted to elaborate this. And he, he could talk about nothing else. I mean, it was tremendously <laughs> interesting to watch. Wonderful he really copy. was absolutely fired up on the. Whereas, you know, I, I don't know anything about sport, but I know Gaelic football. You just get the ball and you kick it up towards the goal and you kick it into the goal or over it. You know, but this, this was to be ballet. This was to be a European system that himself and Giles were proposing. And so um, we went to the match and um, um, the press conference was in the morning. And uh, we'll, get to, we'll, get to the press, we'll get to okay. the press conference in a minute, Colm. I, I just want to go back to Eamon, because while you were on your holidays, um, on a very healthy... <laughs> Uh, expense account for the Sunday Independent. Yeah. Different right. days in journalism, clearly. Um, yeah. Eamon, you were actually the cover story in McGill magazine the month prior to the World Cup. And uh, there's a wonderful interview in there because you actually, you, you made the point actually the World Cup wasn't going on in Spain. It was going on in the living rooms of people across Ireland. This was going to be a televised event. Uh, and I wasn't aware until reading that piece that you, your first World Cup was 1978. So this is, you're, you're an experienced hand. How had RT, like RT coverage, in, in 1990, yes. they covered 41, I think, of 52 games yes. live. Everyone talks about the 1966 World Cup, but there was very few yeah. live games in 1966. By 1990, nearly everything that happened in Italy was being broadcast live. Um, yeah. And you seem to have an awareness that that television was where it happened was what mattered the most. What? Well, I think, yeah. Sorry, what, uh, just how had RT coverage evolved between 78 and 90 and why had it oh, become yeah. so recognisably different to what we were getting? Because we were all getting the ITV and BBC yeah. channels as well. Well, there was a very good head of sport, uh, television uh, sport, Tim O'Connor, who I think uh, Colin may have known. He was a very intelligent, sophisticated guy. He had a background in print journalism at independent newspapers. And I persuaded him there was a better way of doing this. He got Bill O'Hurley. I said, let's get Giles. Let's get Liam Brady. Let's talk seriously. Let's get rid of all the people who have nothing to say. And let's do 
good critical analysis of the games um, and let's go highbrow rather than lowbrow. Uh, and that's the way we did it. So at, by the time we got to 1990 and the World Cup, we had a huge audience uh, for RTE uh, soccer coverage, a bigger one than the British coverage, which was really um, very good. So, yes, I mean, people, a lot of people went to Italy and went to the World Cup, but for everyone else, RTE was where it happened. The England game was described by one of the Italian um, newspapers, the Ireland-England game, which was a draw. Uh, the first match of the World Cup was, it, it, the, the, the Italian newspaper said something to the effect that it was so dull, it sent even the hooligans to sleep. And yet, that wasn't the worst game of the World Cup because the Egypt game came along second. And yeah. that's where yeah. column, column described you as public enemy number one. Um, you were hung for saying something you didn't actually say. Um, yeah. But the reaction was absolutely furious. And again, reading your memoir, yeah. it seemed to have taken a serious personal toll on you, I mean, there was yeah. an incident in Dublin Airport before you even got on the on the flight to uh, to meet Colum uh, in Italy. Yes, I, it was um, when Ireland played Italy. It was a bad day for soccer. For the first time in the country's history, uh, cultural history, uh, the spotlight was on the Irish soccer team. Football had been a Cinderella game. Uh, and today, for example, and rugby people would look down on not just the game, but the people who played it. And for once that day, the whole nation, the gag clubs cancelled their matches. They made Gaelic uh, uh, dressing rooms and facilities available. Communities all watched together. And I thought it was fabulous. For me, as someone who'd always loved soccer, which used to be known by Irish you know, Gael Gars as the foreign game, they were watching our game now and it wasn't a foreign game anymore and we were terrible we played rubbish it was awful and i said whoever sent the team out to play like that should be ashamed of themselves it got translated as uh, i'm ashamed to be irish and that was the problem that's the message that traveled to jack and to italy and of course that's what the papers ran with the next morning um I, it was a storm that I wasn't conscious of starting, but it, it happened. It was a tabloid frenzy, if you like. And you had a sense of that by the following month, because you actually <clears throat> flew out of Dublin. Yeah, I did. I mean, at the airport, it was, yeah, at the airport, it was tough. I got in the taxi to go to the airport, the driver wouldn't speak to me. And there was a, a vibe around that was very, very serious, way above, uh, you know, what a simple remark should cause about a game of football, really. Yeah, there was a vibe. And there was a lot of fans getting on that flight as well. So I was aware. Uh, I thought I want to find my bodyguard as soon as I can get him when I get to Italy. And I was very lucky. Um, <laughs> if your bodyguard accompanied you to a press conference. Colm, you, you were about to launch into a, a kind of a an account of that press conference because it was very um, funny wasn't it Colin <laughs> yeah I mean Avon is so peculiar that he honestly thought that if he could just get to Jack and talk to him that he could convince Jack that what he was saying was true <laughs> and what Jack was doing was rubbish and, and he honestly 
you know, came to the press conference with full of hope that if he just stood up to Jack, and I was sitting beside him. I get mentioned in Jack's book as a little fellow in a green shirt, and I'm sitting beside him, and then various, various anodyne questions get asked, and then Dunphy stands up, and Jack makes it clear that he will not take a question from Dunphy. I then stand up to say, look, I'll, he said, he's not a real journalist. And then I stood up and said, I'll take the, can I ask his question? And he said, no, you can't. And he stood up to walk out. And what was interesting was none of the support of us, um, none of the Irish journalists supported us. Um, and they, it seems that they organized a separate press conference in Jack's hotel with, where Dunphy wouldn't be. The possibility was then that this could become a sort of circus that Dunphy could turn up to every press conference with Jack walking out every time. And Dunphy decided that he wouldn't do this, that this would be bad for the game, this would, that he didn't want to be. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't interested in becoming more. He wasn't. I was there with him all the time. I saw it, and he wasn't. It looked sometimes like he was, but he wasn't. <laughs> and um, he, um, he was, oddly enough, in all his innocence, disappointed that he didn't get to ask Jack the question. And uh, I was fascinated by this, um, I have to say. And then we went on to, uh, I mean, he came back then for the, um, for, the, for the Italy match, for the Ireland, for the Ireland-Italy Yeah, Eamon, uh, it still must have hurt that so many of the Irish journalists wouldn't support you in a very public forum like uh, that. Sorry, can, yeah. I, can I just come in for a second? Can I come in for a second? It might have hurt, but Eamon had been calling them fans with typewriters for some time. <laughs> Eamon will agree, and he had not been, as it were, flattering to them in any way. Eamon, would that be true? Yes, it's true. Uh, and you were going to mention the McGill rugby correspondent who I pinched that line from. Do you remember that? He was yeah. an English fellow. Everyone yeah. hated him. I don't remember yeah, his name. Yeah. But... Um, but uh, yeah, and he used to he used to write anti-Irish stuff, which we used to put into yes, the deals. Right. Drive the readers yeah. nuts. Yes. I used to love him. He was a great guy. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, what was really funny, Mark, about was as, as Colin has said, the Irish journalists actually arranged to go up to Jack's room in the hotel, and they'd hold their own press conference. The English journalists said, "We won't stay for your press conference." Uh, if one of our colleagues is not allowed to ask a question. So the English journalists started, and the Irish journalists started to have a big fight. And in the middle of this brouhaha, to use a cliche, a word I never use, one of the Irish journalists said, I don't forget, we're in Palermo, said to the English journalists, why don't you fuck off home? <laughs> We apologise to viewers at home. I'm sorry for, yeah. for that Nobody outburst. Was... But yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, but I mean, you 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 return again for um, the um, final game, which is the quarterfinal against um, the hosts in Rome, and yeah. um, by then. I mean, it must be clear that actually this has kind of transcended sport completely. I mean, there is, yeah. I mean, Charles, everybody is on their way to Rome here for, 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 the, for this moment. And really at that stage, you must have felt like now any discussion of sport is, has been pushed to the periphery. It's, it's, it's gone beyond that at this point. Well, Colin would know. I mean, at the stadium, Charles, Hoy, the Taoiseach was there. Um, you two were sitting behind us. Do you remember that, Colin? 
Oh no, you were quite close to bottom that night. <laughs> but it was, it had transcended sport at that stage. The quarterfinal of the World Cup is a big, big deal. And we'd had the mania penalty shootout, which was, I think, the, the moment when all of the public uh, really were engaged in this now romantic journey. Uh, and uh, that was a moment um, as well. I think that but night, definitely, um, sorry. I think that night in general was very special. Um, by that time, yes. the Italian police, I think, had learned that the Arab are really not in any way dangerous. And uh, the, the win was such a surprise and the tension was so enormous and the release of tension came out with everyone just wandering into the bars and wandering in the streets of Genoa. The Italians that same night won a what, match somewhere else. So Italian fans who weren't at the match, who'd been watching it on TV, they came out into the street. And so the Irish and the Italians wandered around into fountains, into bars, hugging each other, kissing each other, going by drinks. That night was an extraordinary night to be alive. And also there, was a one, there were wonderful moments where there were a lot of guys who had permission to go to this match, but they didn't even have, have outlined planning permission to go to Rome. <laughs> and they were beginning to think, how am I going? Like, like, there's a mortgage, there's school fees, there's a car, there's a, you know, like I promised. There's a birthday, you know, and I just, I'm like, whatever, I'm going to do this. And that, and that was tremendous watching. I, I, all, all along, I have to say, it was tremendous watching large groups of Irish people arriving on the two islands first, then Genoa, then Rome, finding somewhere to stay, getting a ticket, finding their friends. This is before mobile phones and working out very, very quickly. Really, people who were really copped on, really had things sussed as to how to get everything organized so you could go drinking and so you could ha have a lot of fun. One was tremendously interesting. And that may give us some clue as to the Celtic Tiger thing of watching this greatly, great adaptable community who could, you know, no one got lost in that time. No one didn't have a ticket. No one slept on the street. I mean, everyone worked out something. And that, that was tremendously interesting to watch, especially that night in Genoa, where in the middle of the whole revelry, people were making elaborate plans as to how they were going to get <laughs> and uh, so that was that was that, that, that was a real that was uh, that was a beautiful night i mean the nights in dublin were beautiful but that night to be in genoa was a really extraordinary night of course sport doesn't occur in a vacuum you know uh, there is a backdrop to all of this you know uh, ireland in the 1980s in the years preceding this was a pretty bleak place when jack the year jack charlton took over uh, I, I believe unemployment was running at 17 percent if you think about last month with the handbrake lifted in so many parts of our own economy it was still under that so 17 percent in 1986 is absolutely extraordinary i just want to think about reflect on what the world cup Meant. It was really interesting to see so many writers at the time comment on the importance of this event to a certain definition, but perhaps contributing to a redefinition of Irish, Irishness. Now, you touched on that earlier, um, uh, Colm, but uh, in relation perhaps to the Anglo-Irish relationship, perhaps in relation to a diaspora. But of course, the troubles were the other 
backdrop to all of this, you know? And it seemed to be a very, very deliberate attempt to kind of cast the Irishness, that joyous expression of Irishness that we were seeing in Italy and on the streets of Dublin and other towns and villages in stark contrast to the type of Irishness we had seen displayed in the decade prior to that. Can you comment on that? I mean, it seemed to be quite particular. I mean, Kevin Myers writes about it and Harris is writing about it. Uh, you touch upon it, I think, yourself at the time as well, you know, that we are seeing a different type of Irishness on, on display here. Colm, you might start with you. I'm talking oh, about the backdrop I, I of the think troubles it was here. One that we, I think it was one that we all knew and recognised. Um, and I, But I think the difference was that um, watching so many, especially young men, being, being just so good at organising themselves, and then so good at not getting too drunk. I mean, I didn't, I mean, all the things we associate with Irish drunkenness just weren't there. That, that it was a way that a lot of people, what you're talking about with that unemployment, had England, had gone to America, or had gone to Poland, had gone to the European places. And all of them had learned something, which is that if you don't look after yourself this week, you know, if you don't get somewhere to stay, if you just let things slip for one week, you're gone, you know, it, it's over. So that you were watching a, a, a community who had been living with emigration for 150 years. And that whole idea of being able to fix yourself up, organize yourself, meet your friends, see, see where to go. But I think what Dermot Bulger deals with it really beautifully in high Germany, the idea of just someone who drifted out of Ireland and who had gone to England or had gone to France and suddenly finding that, all oh, right, this is where I'll meet my friends again. This is where we all be together one more time. And it was that one more time feeling of people who had, who had drifted out of Ireland with the, uh, with the unemployment um, meeting up and and actually having a sense of something almost new. I mean, it was always there, but this was a expression of something that being, was being publicly recognised, that um, Irish fans were completely different to not only English fans, but some of the European thugs as well. We didn't do thuggery. <laughs> that was news to us. I mean, that was official news that we didn't do thuggery because we thought we did. Eamon, do you yeah. think the promise of Italian 90, I'm talking now in sporting terms, soccer terms, was realised? We did qualify for two of the next three World Cups, but was the foundation built upon? Um, not exactly, no. I mean, there's a, a paradox here. Jack was a great evangelist for soccer, and it was no longer a despised foreign game. Uh, and it was no longer a Cinderella sport. And now it is the most, uh, the sport in which most people participate in Ireland, actually. Um, that was the good news. But his legacy in terms of uh, the way the game should be played uh, in a more intelligent and sophisticated way, that wasn't great. But that wasn't really the point. I mean, when Jack died uh, there several weeks ago, I mean, people were remembering the times they had, the journeys they went on with their friends, the barbecues and the communal celebrations of any given day. And they were remembering beating England in 1988 in the European Championships, getting to the quarterfinal in Rome, winning the penalty shootout against Romania in Genoa, which Colin saw. They were remembering those moments fondly because despite the harsh economic background you refer to when you're so right inflation interest rates the lot unemployment emigration 
this Charlton experience happened against that backdrop, but it was something people celebrated together. And there is one point that Colin made earlier about the um, the team. A lot of people like Ray Houghton and all kinds of people who were born in Scotland or England, uh, the sons, grandsons of emigrants. After the penalty shootout against Romania, John Healy, who Colin will know, great political journalist of the time in the Irish Times, Paul Corr, friend of Hohe's, no interest at all in soccer. He was from Mayo and wrote a wonderful book about uh, exile and people having to leave their homes. He was watching the penalty shootout. There was a European conference in Dublin Castle. And when Ireland won, there's a piece of video of him in tears, floods of tears, breaking down, tears of joy. It's an amazing moment. This man had no interest in soccer. And yet he was engaged by this. He saw something in that moment that moved him so much. Eamon, I heard the... Um... Uh, the new Irish manager uh, a few days ago on the radio referred to the fact that he was he was anxious for the team to move away from a British type of football, and I'm I'm surprised to actually hear him say that because I I just wonder if the changes that happened in the 1990s with um, the introduction of pay TV, Sky Television, um, is there such a thing as British football anymore? Is it not? Did it not just become a globalised game? And is is Ireland lost in the globalisation of English football? In the sense of the nineteen nineties, the number of Irish players, perhaps playing at a top flight, began to began to decline uh, precipitously. Well, it is a globalised game, uh, and yet there is a kind of. No, and there isn't an English style of football anymore. Um, so to that extent, you know, you're absolutely right. Um, Ireland, um, uh, we don't have the conditions that great soccer players are born into, are poverty uh, and street games, street football. That's where you learn to be a footballer. It's like the university. So for, for academics and writers even. But... Those conditions don't um, obtain anymore. So we're not producing players. We need fascism and poverty to get back to being good at it. Well, Colin would know something about that. Argentina has produced the greatest player we've ever seen, Lionel Messi. Uh, our previous session, yeah. I might warn you, was on building a social democracy in Ireland and a new republic. And nowhere mentioned in that session with Finch and O'Toole was a... Um, was a move towards fascism. So, um, I, I, I'd rather not have the soccer team. Let's go for the, the good <laughs> stuff. And don't worry about the football. Sorry, Colm, you were going to talk. No. Uh, Colm, I'm just thinking, it just it, the transformations that have taken place since there. Since then, uh, both socially, culturally here, particularly, I suppose, in the media, you know, um, the growth of social media channels. Even though television commands mass audiences for live sporting events, I, I just wonder, do you think it's possible to have that type of collective experience again? One that we saw in, in, at the time of Italian idea. Or, or does the media, social media tend to fragment that type of community that we, uh, that we, that we, that, that we had then? Um, 
I think it possibly arose with the COVID um, where we saw the same thing happening. If you compare what happened in Ireland to what happened in the United States, the way in which people in Ireland came together, actually accepted there were rules, listened to the rules and did everything they could. I mean, obviously there were exceptions. We know about the exceptions, but they really exceptional. But most people who are listening to this will know what I'm talking about. The way in which people listened and said, this is what I have to do. And people did it as a community, as a group. And there's a sense still in Ireland of that, um, that, 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 that idea of social cohesion, of the country being able to come together under certain conditions without people saying, I don't care. I'm not wearing a mask, whether I infect people. Um, Americans have no trouble saying that. People literally have no, even to this, even six months on, have no trouble saying, I'm not wearing a mask. This wasn't the way in general people behaved in Ireland in relation to the rules. So that's just another example of some big phenomenon coming towards Ireland and Ireland behaving in a way which showed social cohesion. So, so I'm not sure that that much has changed. Okay, we're going to turn because we've had uh, questions, I believe, coming from, well, we don't actually have any questions coming from, uh, fr from, um, from online. But uh, one I did want to ask you, Colin, was in and around Roddy Doyle. I think when you look back at the Italia 90 experience, if, if I want to know what it looked like, uh, I tend to look at the pictures of the time, if I, or maybe television. If I want to know what it felt like to get under the bonnet, the lived experience, I read a book like The Van. Um, it really, it, it's extraordinary to see, you, you mentioned Dermot Bulger. Dermot Bulger and Roddy Doyle are perhaps the two great cultural legacies of the Charlton era, uh, uh, 86 to 95. They're remarkable pieces of work. Yeah, that I think they were both already thinking and thinking seriously about the whole idea of Dublin, areas of Dublin, especially housing estates in Dublin, being left out of history, being sort of not included in, in any official version of things. And in setting about writing the novel from the commitments on one hand and Dermot Bulger, say, The Journey Home or The Woman's Daughter, that they were attempting to put a flag up over an unnamed place. And... Um, so that when the World Cup came their way, or, or, or indeed the, the, the 1988 victory over England, they were, they were both absolutely poised to rise to the occasion. And so we get the van, which, which really does attempt to get, to capture A, the sort of bacchanalia, the sort of extraordinary joy in the streets, but also almost making the Dunphy thing a necessary part of that, that if you're going to have a carnival, you're going to need the appearance of the devil or somebody, <laughs> a hate figure. And, and I think with the, I, I'm not going to go into the COVID virus national hate figures, but we got those too. You know, they were always going to have to come. And so uh, there, there are very rude things said about Eamon in Roddy's, in Roddy Doyle's book, The Van. But <laughs> I, I can see almost as though in that pattern of carnival, you have to have a Dunphy. And uh, I, it's, it's, I, I found the book, um, it's an absolutely marvelous novel, uh, but it, we were in a very unusual place uh, to have two writers who were able to very quickly respond to what was happening nationally, and um, certainly I, th I think I think they both did. They both did that. Eamon, how did you feel about Roddy Doyle putting you as a kind of a as the I suppose the bête noir of the uh, of the van? Well, I and um, I thought. Um, it was, I mean, it's fine. Uh, it's, 
I think it was a burger or something, wasn't it? Or a, a hot dog, it, it, wasn't it? Was it Dunphy and chips? Yeah. I think. It was, yeah. <laughs> Come on, chips, yeah. Yeah. We know, yeah. we know what it was, David. <laughs> if you don't want to be reminded, just call me out. I'll, I'll read you the offending sections anytime. <laughs> no, I, I didn't mind. I mean, of course I didn't mind. I, 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 did, I wasn't seeking notoriety. That was, it was just a byproduct of, of, of that experience. Um, and, you know, I'm fine with it. Uh, and, stuff happens it's the country went mad i mean when i came back to the airport the day after the italian loss i think uh there was about a million people on the streets waiting for the team i was on the plane before the teams and i nearly got you know uh they nearly rolled my car over they spotted me and they stopped me at the roundabout there and there was no guards and it was it that was frightening and a guard eventually came along. He said, if I was you, Eamon, I wouldn't go down the airport road. Where do you live? I said, Balls Bridge. He said, well, go out by Malahide and you can go around the way because it wouldn't be safe to go down the, the wait for the team. Eamon, so there was there, a bad moment. If I had been there, I would, have, I would have stopped. I would have protected you in every possible way. I would have, I would have run those guys. <laughs> they, would have been, they, would, they would have run away really scared. I would have even frightened that guard. I would have, I would have spoken severely to that <laughs> You were a great bodyguard. You were a great company anyway, which is, uh, was made On the last you, night, you... um, on the last night um the match was over uh, i was beside jim mitchell with bonners and jim mitchell kept shouting watch scalacci watch scalacci i'll never forget that <laughs> and then we and then of course we missed the bus or, or we decided not to get the bus because yeah we didn't, meet, uh, we didn't want to meet any to join us and then, which is a huge long walk through desolate rome hmm. on a saturday yeah. night and it was warm and we just kept walking we met pronchis de rossa we met various other people along the way, but we ended up, the two of us, going into Piazza Navona, which is the most sort of yes. fashionable uh, square in Rome. And once more, me attempting to get Eamon to appreciate, look, this is where, you know, this is the most beautiful square in Europe. And <laughs> Eamon back in, Jack, the match. If that, Dave O'Leary, you know, I, I just, he could not be stopped. <laughs> And uh, <laughs> even Piazza Navona, even the beauty, the, fountain, the fountains, the beautiful night, the June night, the drinks, the beautiful people, the drugs. The, the, the Dolce Vita was walking by us and every possible guy, Dunphy was back into Dave O'Leary and, uh, you know, <laughs> Patty Bonner and, oh, dear. Okay, I'm going to have to rein you in. Gentlemen, I'm going to have to rein you in here. I'm going to have to rein you in here. And <laughs> I, I put it. <laughs> And let someone else contribute. Uh, we, we have a question here from one of our online uh, viewers uh, that they want to put to you. And, and Sinead's going to just read it out here. So this one is for Cullum. So could you tell us what's your favourite standout story about minding Eamon? <laughs> I, I, you have no idea what it was like. I mean, I would do everything possible to divert him by saying, look, there's a very beautiful, you know, oh, look at that person there. He would just go back into, you know. And you see, I couldn't understand what he was talking about. So, I mean, in the sense that I thought maybe scoring it, that the, that the actual aim in soccer was to score. I just thought maybe that was true. And that the job then was to aim the ball towards the goal, kicking it regularly, making sure you don't put your hands on it, because unlike our dear Gaelic, you can't do that, and get a goal. But I 
Giles and himself were on some other hymn sheet. And so uh, <laughs> you should have seen the two of us. I mean, it was really, it was really sick because uh, I don't think Dunphy remembers a single meal or a single street in Palermo. <laughs> and I, I was back there. I was back there recently, and I was just looking at all the things that if only Dunphy. I was if only Dunphy could have stopped talking about soccer, we could have had a really nice time in Palermo. <laughs> uh, one more uh, here from Sinead. Uh, so for Eamon, uh, how do you feel about the current coverage of football? Um, well, uh, that's a difficult question to answer in fairness because I'm not part of it anymore um, and I might be accused of having, uh, of being biased. It's fine. Um, it's not too bad. Can you Sorry elaborate, please, Eamon? No, I, I mean, well, there was a time when Bill O'Hurley, the late Bill O'Hurley, he was there. John Giles um, and myself and Liam Brady probably when it was probably a bit more cerebral uh, and interesting than it is. But then uh, that's just life, you know? Um, um, if, if, you, know you know in Dublin they put there. plaques on buildings in Dublin. I've often wondered if they could put a plaque on Joy's nightclub, which has to be in Baggett Street. <laughs> with the note, with the note, and we could, I think we could find the date where this is early on, before all this World Cup business, where Owen Hand, who was the manager came over towards us. I was there with Dunphy. We were just drinking. It was late at night. And uh, I thought, oh, Owen Hand's going to join us. And Dunphy stood up as though he was going to shake his hand. And hi, Owen, even though a lot of, of nastiness had. Dunphy hadn't written very flatteringly about him. And uh, Owen Hand threw his drink at Dunphy. I was amazing. <laughs> and uh, like, these are the soccer wars. This is, this, this is a serious game. And uh, I think that would be suitable at Joy. This is the site where Owen Hand threw a drink at him. <laughs> well, Jack, I Jack didn't do any of that. Jack, Jack just walked away. No. Jack just walked out. I think on that note, we may just draw our conversation to a close. Um, it's been hugely entertaining. I think if it went down any further, we could move into very strange territory. I want to thank Eamon for, for joining us this evening and, and Colm uh, across the Atlantic uh, for uh, getting out of bed and um, entertaining us um, so wonderfully uh, this evening. So uh, thank you to thank our you guests, much. Colm and Eamon. Uh, thank you to our, our viewers at home and to our partners um, in the Little Music Museum of Dublin who have been collaborating both on the exhibition which is still ongoing there uh, at the moment but also collaborating with the Galway Arts Festival uh, in putting together tonight's event so good night uh, from the Black Box Theatre in Galway and uh, rejoin the Galway Arts Festival next weekend Thank you for listening to First Thought For more visit the talks page on Galway International Arts Festival's website giaf.ie